Go ahead and grab a seat. And as you do, I'm going to ask you to do something that I don't normally ask you to do, but invite you to take your Bibles and open straight up to the passage that we looked at last week. Let's go back to John 15, verses 1 through 8. So if you got your sermon note sheet and you were wondering, was that a typo? No. We're going right back to John 15, 1 through 8. And it's a passage that kind of broke down not not as easily like, all right, verses 1 through 4 and then verses 5 through 8, but it's a verse where Jesus is weaving in, talking about a couple different things. And last week we looked at one aspect of it, and this week we want to look at the other. But if you remember last week, we started off talking about this image of the Treasure Valley, which is, even geographically, something of an oasis in the midst of a wilderness. And we told the story of, you know, the French guy that was leading some uh, American soldiers in the early days of America uh, along this way. And when he crossed that hill and he could see into the treasure valley, he cried out, the woods, the woods, or in French, le bois, le bois, which is where we get the name of the city, Boise. But he could see there was something different about this valley. And that's because there's a, a life source going through it. And we talked about, well, we want to be live fruitful lives, and we're not going to do that without a life source going through us, and that's Jesus Christ. Now, last week, we looked at it from kind of an absolute sense, where Jesus makes clear, hey, either you are bearing fruit or you are not. And we looked at, well, what does that mean if you are not? And we looked at what Jesus said, hey, if you are not bearing fruit, which means you're not abiding in me, you're going to be plucked from the vine and thrown into the fire. And what what does that mean? We talked about the various serious truths that From the Bible, there is no such thing truly as a fruitless Christian. And faith without works is dead. But today we want to now look at the other aspect where he says, hey, if you do abide in me, you will bear fruit. And we see that it seems that the goal is not just that we bear fruit, but that we bear much fruit, that we bear more fruit. So if you're here today saying, I know I'm in Christ, I'm, I'm bearing fruit. His desire for you is that that would grow, that you would bear more fruit. And even if you think about the Treasure Valley and how it must have looked to those weary travelers that had come all the way up through an area that felt like there was not a lot going on and seeing a change in color, a change in vegetation in this valley. I'm just going to go out on a limb and say this valley is more fruitful today than it was then. Well, nothing has changed as far as we still have the Boise River flowing through, but we've learned, well, how do we cultivate that? So it's not just even the green belt that is green, but this whole valley is producing fruit. And even that all comes to, well, we're we're leaning into that source of water. And that's kind of what we want to think about as a Christian life. Either you've got Christ in you or you don't. But his goal is that we bear more fruit. And the way to bear more fruit is, well, how do we cultivate that source of life? How do we lean into that, that we might bear more fruit for Christ? We know from our experience, like we said last week, right now it feels like everybody wants to live in the Treasure Valley. But in a sense, we all want to be like the Treasure Valley, that we all want our lives to be something green and fruitful, no matter what's going on around us. So we want to learn more about that this week. So if you're there in John 15, follow along again as I read verses 1 through 8. Jesus says, I am the vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself 
unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So there we see this text that we looked at last week. And to review, he's using this extended analogy illustration of the vine, right? And and the vine and grapes grow off of that vine. And he says, I am the vine. The vine represents Jesus Christ. He is the source of life, sustenance, nutrition. The father is the vine dresser. He's kind of the the farmer, the the person that's coming and taking care of the vine. And we're going to see more about his role today. The branches, that's you and that's me. And the fruit is what we defined last week as changes in attitudes and actions that reflect the life of Christ flowing through you, right? And last week, we looked kind of at verse 2 a little bit, where it says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And we looked at that more last week. What does that mean? What are the branches that don't bear fruit? What is God talking about? Well, this week, we want to kind of lean in more towards What else is he talking about? He says, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And that's what we want to talk about today. And that really is the goal of this passage. Go to the end, verse 8, and Jesus kind of gives the punchline. What's the point of this illustration or parable? And Jesus says, by this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. The goal of Jesus telling his followers is, is, I want you to bear fruit and not just fruit. I want you to bear much fruit. And wherever you're at now, I want you to bear more fruit. And that's kind of it from the human perspective, but that multiplication of fruit results in the ultimate goal, which is God is glorified. And that is what Jesus wants. The question I want us to start off asking this morning is, is that what you want? Is your greatest desire, I want to live a fruitful life that glorifies God. Point number one this morning, let's put it down simply this way, desire a fruitful life. Desire a fruitful life. That is what Jesus desires for his followers. That's the point of this illustration, is that they might bear much fruit. We need to make sure we want that. We want what Jesus is saying here. Throughout the ages of the church, there's been different creeds or confessions that just have a way of taking a big theological truth or idea and just putting it in a very succinct form. And obviously, one of the the famous expressions of that is the first question of the Westminster Catechism, which asks, what is the chief end of man? What is our ultimate purpose? Why are we here, to put it in more modern vernacular? But goes on to say, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's why we're here. That should be our main goal in life. Is that really your main goal? And some of this comes down to even why God saved you. 
And I want us to understand that sometimes God saved us for more than we realize. Lately, I was playing Monopoly with my daughter, and it had been a minute since I played the game Monopoly, so I was getting a little refreshed on the rules and how the game works. And I was reminded of that nice little thing, that good old get-out-of-jail-free card. Isn't that a nice thing to have when you're playing Monopoly? When that's the first time I've had somebody amen, you know, a nice thing in Monopoly. That's good. I like, I'm feeling the vibe from this 11 o'clock service this morning. But it's a nice thing to have when you land on that go-to-jail space and you say, booyah, I have a get-out-of-jail-free card. I ain't going to no jail, right? That's a good thing. Is that the point of the game? No. That, that, that card is not going to win you the game. You, you got hotels on Park Place and Boardwalk. Now we're getting somewhere, right? And for many of us, we like to... In a theological sense, we reduce our salvation basically to a theological get-out-of-jail-free card. That because I am saved, I'm not going to hell when I die. I'm not going to experience the judgment of God. And that is true. That is good. That is glorious. Praise God. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But that's not it. That's not all of why God saved us. We see here God saved us not just to rescue us from destruction, but so that we could bear much fruit and prove to be his disciples and glorify God. He didn't save us just to give us a get-out-of-jail-free card. He saved us to say, all right, now let's start putting up some hotels on Park Place and Boardwalk. Let's start bearing fruit and showing and glorifying God with how you live your life. And that's what Jesus says is our main goal. That's what Jesus' purpose is for us. But we're surrounded by a world that's encouraging us to Pursue all kinds of other things to make the chief end of your life a successful career that ends in fame or notoriety or financial success. That the main goal of your life is to have that perfect family and to raise those perfect children. But that the goal of life is just to go have as much fun and get as much pleasure as you can. And some of those things the world is pushing us after are sinful things. And some of those things are are good things. They're great things. They're just not meant to be the main thing. But in however the world thinks about it, to them, ultimately, it ends up, it's, it's always about circumstances. And what God wants to do is equip you to be fruitful no matter what the circumstances. So if the ultimate judgment on your life is not how much money you made in your profession and not whether you were the CEO of some big company or you just made a living doing DoorDash your whole life, right? But that's not the goal. It's what kind of fruit you bore no matter where you are. So that whether you're happily married with six kids or you're single or widowed or divorced, God can still use you in that situation to bear fruit to glorify him. And that's what you're there for because your main goal in life is not all those other things. It's I want to glorify God by living that life that shows the change of Christ working in my life. And again, if you are putting something else in that place, it's not just, oh, well, that's not what God wants and we should do what God wants. It's no, you are missing out because the chief end that God has for us, that's the best. And whenever we put something else in that first place, instead of glorifying God, we're ultimately the ones that are going to miss out on the reason that God created us for. And it's going to lead to good places. Sneak peek of next week in John 15, verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. Jesus wants you to bear much fruit and glorify God because that's when your joy will be full. 
Now, how do we get that? How, how do we then produce this fruit and live this fruitful life? And one thing we're seeing very clearly from John 15 is it's not about us, right? It's about our connection to the vine. But Jesus has introduced us to this other character that he is helping to manage that connection that we have to the vine, and that is the vine dresser. So let's go back to verse 2. And we looked at kind of the first half last week, but let's look at that second half where it talks about the vine dresser who is the father and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So remember, there are two kinds of branches, those that bear fruit and those that don't. We talked about the first or the ones that don't bear fruit last week. This week, we want to see every branch that bears fruit He's going to prune, prune that it might bear more fruit. Now notice, how many of the, bran- of the fruitful branches is he pruning? Every single one of them. Every branch that bears fruit, he is pruning. Now if we thought about what pruning is, now if you uh, go out to lunch, you say you head over to Culver's there at Eustick and Eagle after the service, right? And you get some lunch. You get a cheeseburger and you get some of those cheese curds and cheese dip so you can dip your fried cheese into melted cheese and then just go into a coma for the rest of Sunday afternoon. And you do that. Well, let's just say go right across the street to Lowe's and go into Lowe's and look for pruning shears, okay? And think about what those are. There's this nice little gardening tool that just kind of gently massages the vine. And there's even a button you can push on it that just has all these like words of affirmation. Like, you're the best vine ever. You can do it, right? That's not what pruning shears are. They're shears. They cut the vine, right? They have sharp edges. I don't know what the vine's thinking. I don't think the vine has a brain, but it's probably the vine's probably saying, ouch, right? It's a, it can be a painful thing. And so when we think about, hey, the father, he is pruning the branches that bear fruit. That's going to be uncomfortable. But what we're going to see here is, though, it's good and it's beneficial. And that should lead us to point number two this morning, which we need to welcome the Father's training. Welcome the Father's training. When he steps in to prune, are you going to say, oh, I don't like this? Or are you going to say, hey, this is good and I need this? And how you're going to respond to point number two is very directly related to where you're at with point number one. Because if your main goal in life is not, I want to glorify God by very much fruit, but it's something like, I want to be comfortable and things to be okay. Well, then guess what? You're going to hate trials, right? Because they're taking away your comfort and it doesn't feel like things are okay. But if your main goal in life is, hey, I want to bear fruit, I want to glorify God, then you're going to welcome trials. It might not always be your favorite thing, right? They're uncomfortable, but you will welcome them. I want us to look at two passages, one kind of just briefly on the way to the other, but let's go to James chapter 1. And this one will probably be very familiar to many of you, and even as Pastor Charlie is teaching through the book of James, this is where it all started, James chapter 1 verse 2, where we are told something very, very counterintuitive to our human brains. James 1 verse 2 says, count it all joy my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. That's not my natural reaction. Is it yours? I don't think so. Why in the world would I do that? Why, when a trial comes, would I say, yes? Well, verse three, for you know 
that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What does that sound like? It sounds like that you might bear more fruit and therefore glorify God, proving to be his disciples. So we rejoice when trials come, not because they're fun, not because they're comfortable, but because we know God's working on me and I'm going to be more fruitful because of this. If you're in James chapter 1, just flip over maybe one, two pages to the left to our second passage, Hebrews chapter 12. Go to Hebrews chapter 12. And this pruning and these trials, sometimes it seems like they're just general, that God is just working on us to make us more like Christ. Sometimes it seems that these things and the pruning that we experience are a specific response to something. There is sin, there is something wrong in our life, and the pruning is corrective to make sure we don't keep growing in a wrong way, but that to get us back on track. And we start to see this idea in verse 4, Hebrews 12, verse 4, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Yeah, that's, that's strong words, good reminder. Sometimes we're, we're kind of Junior varsity Christians, when you look at the grand scheme of things, we haven't resisted to that point. In verse four, 5, and you, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not lightly regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Hey guys, fighting against sin is going to be difficult. And part of that is God is going to discipline us, but don't get frustrated by that. Don't despise that. It's a good thing. Verse seven, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. We should think differently about trials, especially when it is God disciplining us or even correcting us. We shouldn't get just down on ourselves or frustrated at that. We should welcome that because God is doing something good for us that we might, even as it says in verse 11, experience fruit, the fruit of righteousness that comes from learning what God has to teach us. I mean, you can go out in the world and hear people say, hey, everything happens for a reason. The world has no idea what it's talking about when it says that, right? That is just a cross my fingers. I've heard people say that before, and I hope this is all going to work out for me kind of thought. But for the Christian, we know that everything in our life is happening for a reason, and the reason isn't just some nebulous, I hope it's all going to work out in the end. The reason is to prune us, to make us more fruitful, to make us more like 
Christ and to cause us to glorify God. For the Christian, when we see things going on in our lives, we know, hey, my father is working. And we can rest on certain truths. He has the perfect motives. He loves us. He has the perfect purpose to make us more like him, which is actually the best thing that he can do for us. And he always uses the perfect means. Our father, he is really wise. And maybe some of you, you look back at how your father disciplined you and you're like, I don't know that that was the best idea. And then you look at your own kids and you're like, I hope this is the best idea. As you navigate that yourself, our heavenly father is always the best idea. And so you can realize, hey, that trial that's going to come into your life this afternoon or this week, it's not an accident. If you are a believer, God is doing the best thing that he can possibly do to make you more like Christ. Shouldn't that transform the way you think about you think about your life? When parenting seems like a struggle and on top of that, one of your kids starts puking, right? Oh, what's going on with this? No, this is exactly what my heavenly father wanted me to experience today so that I might become more like Christ. It, wouldn't that be a nice thing? Or when singleness feels like a burden that you just don't know, hey, is this ever going to work out for me? No, this is your father giving you what is best. He's not withholding anything that's the best from you. Or when some drama pops up in your life in some relationship that you didn't ask for and that you didn't start, right? God is working to make you more like Christ. Are you going to welcome that? Or are you going to try to reject that and fight against it? And all of this, it goes against our flesh. It goes against our culture. I mean, the whole theme of this text, if you go back to John 15 now, it's going against so much of how we've been trained to think in the modern Western world, right? What are we going to be celebrating a month and a half from now as we shoot off all those fireworks, right? We're going to be celebrating independence. And on that day, obviously, it's we're talking about it in a political sense, which that's not really what we're talking about today. But we've also been trained to just celebrate independence in that personal sense. And there, there's ways that that is good and it produced a hopeful work ethic that, that is good in the economy for our world. But when it comes to spiritually, we don't want to be thinking independently. Or even you think, what's one of the most famous essays that's ever been written in the United States of America? Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote self-reliance, right? And that's the American virtue. No, that's not the Christian virtue. We are not meant to be self-reliant. We are meant to be totally reliant on God. Look at verses 4 and 5 again in John chapter 15. Jesus says, abide, which means dwell, remain in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You see how strongly the end of that verse is worded? Apart from me, you can do nothing. Let's just put it down that way for point number two. Admit that you can do nothing. If you want to add without Christ there, you can. But that's the idea. Without Christ, you can do 
nothing. I mean, have you ever had that device, that electronic device that you've had for a while, and at this point, the battery is just kind of fried, and you plug it in to charge it, but as soon as you unplug it, it's like, oh, battery 100%, 50%, 20%, 2% dead, right? And it just doesn't work anymore unless it's plugged in. That's you and me, okay? We are the device that we're not going to work unless we are plugged in. We need the life of Christ working through us. If you are not plugged into Christ, if you are not abiding in him and he and you, you can't do anything. And specifically, we're talking about bearing fruit. You are not going to have new attitudes and new actions that reflect the life of Christ if you are not abiding in him. So again, I'm not trying to make a point about work ethic or, or, or the economy, right? No, we need a strong work ethic. I'm, I'm talking about how this relates to our spiritual lives. And one of the biggest problems we have as Christians is that we are way too reliant on ourselves. You ever kind of popped a joint out of place before and, and somebody comes to, to pop it back in and right away it's like, ow! But then as soon as it happens, it's like, oh, actually, oh yeah, that, that actually makes, makes sense. That, oh yeah, that's, that's how it's supposed to be. I came across a quote that was kind of like that this week as I was preparing for this sermon. It said, very few of us are weak enough to be powerful. Very few of us are weak enough to be powerful. And at first when I heard that, I was like, ow, that hurts, right? That stings because that, that hits me where I need to be hit. But then I start realizing, wait, you know, that's actually good. That's the way it's supposed, yeah, that's the way it's supposed to be. That's the way God designed it to work. Very few of us are weak enough to be powerful. And the Apostle Paul writes about a time where he learned that lesson. And I want us to look at that as we go from John 15 now to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And we're going to see kind of Jesus is using a illustration of the vine and the branches to illustrate this truth. Paul, I think, is going to describe the same truth. He's just going to use his own experience. And at the beginning of chapter 12, he basically talks about how he had a vision where he was caught up into heaven. And then he, he says, as a result of that, starting in verse 7, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, I don't know about you, if you and I had a vision where we were caught up into heaven, I think one concern God would rightly have for us is, hey, let's not let their head get too big, right? God gave him something. He says, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. So Paul had this incredible experience and God gives him a thorn in the flesh. Start to see how counterintuitive that is. If it was up to you and me, I don't think we would ever say, you know what I really need to grow as a Christian right now? I, I just need a thorn in the flesh. God, give me a thorn in the flesh, right? That's not how we think. And even look, Paul, he responds and says three times, I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. He's saying, God, Take away this thorn in the flesh. I don't like it. But God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, 
I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is kind of that second point in action. God knows what he's doing. He brings the right thing into Paul's life to teach Paul the right lesson. And Paul realizes, I'm not going to be strong unless I am weak. And so now I'm actually thanking God for this thorn in the flesh that he has given me. But again, that's, that's just not how you and I usually operate. We want to think, hey, I've got this under control. And then things get crazy. We're like, oh, wait, God, I need some help. Help down here. Clean up on aisle six, God. I need some help. When what God is trying to say, no, that's the way you should always be thinking. And the trials that he brings are reminding us of what is always true. There should not be one day that you or I wake up and say, I got this. We should be waking up every day saying, God, I need you. I need your help. And these calamities that might happen in our lives, they remind us of what is actually true all the time. And you start to see how this should change. I mean, there might be things even about your life that you resent, that you don't like. It might be something physical, right? Some ongoing physical issue that you have that you think, this is just slowing me down. Why? I don't like this. Or maybe it comes to something like anxiety and just physically it affects you differently, right? Where you start to get anxious, your stomach, like you can't eat anything, right? And you hate that about yourself. Or it's some situation that you're like, why did God put me here? Well, we should start to actually cherish those things because this is where God is teaching me I'm nothing and I need him. Those things get us and should get us to a place of total reliance on God, 100% dependence on him. You want to talk about a life that, was, that bore much fruit and glorified God? One example you could give is Hudson Taylor, missionary in kind of the late 1800s, early 1900s in the inland of China. And even in his life, he bore much fruit through his faith in, in the work that he did in that mission. And I mean, for a century and a half now since then, he has been an example and inspired generations of Christian missionaries. And this is what he said. He said, and we, because we might consider someone like Hudson Taylor to be a spiritual giant, Right? Well, this is what he said. All God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on his being with them. The people you might look at and say, oh man, they did great things for God. It's not because, oh, they're different from you. It's that they were weak and they knew it. And that forced them to depend even more on God. He goes on to say, want of trust is at the root of almost all our sins and all our weaknesses. And how shall we escape it but by looking to him and observing his faithfulness? It sounds like abiding in him. The man who holds God's faithfulness will not be foolhardy or reckless, but he will be ready for every emergency. Right? This doesn't mean we're reckless. doesn't mean that we're crazy, but we're always trusting God and we're ready for every emergency. We're ready to be fruitful no matter what the famine is. But what does that look like? And again, some of that goes, well, aren't we supposed to 
to work? I mean, how does that go together? And unfortunately, you even hear some pastors writing books or preaching sermons. They basically take this idea and say, hey, you know what, Christian? So just relax. Don't worry about anything. Just kind of chill out. Just let go and let God. And I don't think that's the right application of what we're talking about. It was an old pastor of mine that often defended, no, God is calling us to work. But what kind of work? And one time he used an illustration that I thought was very helpful. You think about a boat and how you can propel a boat forward without a motor or something like that. Well, consider two options, rowing versus sailing. Both of those can get that boat to move. And both of those take work. It's just very different kinds of work, right? Rowing, it is you by your own force propelling that boat forward. Sailing is is hard work, but what you're doing is you're hoisting the sails that's going to catch a different force that's going to push you forward. And that is much more what the Christian life is like. It's not rowing. It's not, all right, pull yourself up by your own spiritual bootstraps, do better, try harder, let's go, let's get this done. It is, no, I'm working, but the work that I'm doing is really about maintaining that connection to the vine, where in the sailing illustration, right, hoisting the sail to catch the wind, right, of the Holy Spirit, and that's what's going to push me forward. Yes, there is work in the Christian life. If you don't want to hear that, then this isn't the church for you, but what kind of work is it, and what does that look like? What we're going to see, it's the work of abiding in Christ, leaning on him. That's the work that God is calling us to do. And I think, what does that mean? What what do I go do this week? Well, I think Jesus helps us get there in verse 7. We talked about verse 6 a lot last week, the branches that are thrown into the fire and burned. But then look at verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And Jesus gets back to two things that I hope we talk about a lot and I hope we do on a daily basis. Point number four this morning, lean on Christ through the word and prayer. Lean on Christ through the word and prayer. He starts off there, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. Now in verse three, he talks about his word and how they were already clean because of the word. And maybe you think of the word as kind of the word in a broader sense, or even what's the central message of the Bible, the good news of the gospel, what Jesus has done for us, the hope of salvation. Or you think of passages like Colossians 3.16, which seem to fit all this, which says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness, in your hearts to God. But I think it's interesting that in verse seven, he even, he doesn't just say, my word abide in you. He says, my words abide in you. It seems that he's not just referring to the overall message of the Bible or just to the truth of God in general. It seems like he's getting a little more specific. Like, hey, you should have some specific words of mine that are abiding in you. It's not just a general statement. We referred even last week to this whole image of being fruitful in a famine or kind of an illustration of the treasure valley to Psalm chapter 1, which describes this blessed man who is like a tree planted by streams of water. And no matter what's going on with the weather, this tree is bearing fruit because it's connected to the water source. 
well, how, how does that blessed person get like that? Right before that, it says, he delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law, he meditates day and night. That's what you and I need to be doing. The words of Christ need to be abiding in us. That means we, we should be meditating on them day and night. We should always be chewing on God's word. And that's why we call our Bible reading program here Revival from the Bible. And whether that's what you're doing for your Bible reading or not, Revival from the Bible is something that we all need every single day. We need God's words to abide in us. We need to put them in front of our eyes so that our perspective could be transformed. So that our thoughts are formed by the truth of Christ. And even we talk about with Revival from the Bible, our reading program, that we want to get in the word and help each other get more out of the word. We need to be getting something out of the word. This is not just something, oh, I do, and then I forget what I read. No, I want to take some of those words that I read with me. They need to abide in me throughout my day, throughout my life. I want those words to come stay with me as I'm living life, as I'm going through my day. Are you putting your attention on the word of Christ and are you digging in so that you're getting something out, words that you can take with you? That's what we need. That, that takes work. But that's the work of abiding in Christ, letting his word dwell in us richly. And think about what gets the usage of your brain. You ever, you know sometimes when your computer starts to sound like it's a jet airplane getting ready to take off because the fan is just going crazy? And you're like, what is going on? And you can kind of pull up that one program that shows you what your computer is doing and kind of even breaks up percentages of what your computer is focused on. What if I could do that for your brain? What, what is your brain power going towards? What, is, what are you really letting abide in you? Is it Netflix? Is it the latest sports scores and what's going on with the NBA playoffs and is Phil Mickelson going to pull it off this afternoon? Is that what's getting all the focus in your brain? Is it politics or all the things that you're worried about in the world? Is it social media and just doing something to keep your brain moving? Is it all the latest gossip? Or is it really, no, I'm going back, I'm chewing on what God is saying through his word and I'm digging in so that I've got something to chew on as I go throughout my day. What I want you to see is there's a connection here between what he is saying about his words abiding in us and our prayer. Then he goes on to say, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Well, that gets us back to what we talked about a while ago in John chapter 14, verse 14, where he says, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And that's one of those statements that you're like, well, that, that's too good to be true. And we instantly, we just kind of start backpedaling to say, well, that, that can't actually mean what it's saying it means. And we talked about the problem is not with what Jesus said. We said most of the time it's, it's user error. We're not praying like Jesus told us to pray. And even notice these words, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. They don't materialize out of nowhere. It's conditional. It says, if you abide in me. And then by extension, and if my words abide in you, then ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This kind of prayer that we see in verse seven or that we looked at in chapter 14, it's only going to happen 
when the words of Christ are abiding in us. Right? We talk about, hey, we need to read our Bible and pray. And there is a power in those things. Not just because, oh, you're checking off the box and doing your little Christian responsibilities. But it leads to a confident, powerful, and fruitful life. And there is a link between these two things that I think a lot of Christians don't ever really think about or don't practice. There should be a link in your life with the word and then your prayers. And I want you to think about this as it relates to your prayers going in two different directions. One, going from the direction of from the word to your life. If prayer is talking to God, how about we let him start the conversation? And what does that look like? Well, I don't think it looks like you just sitting there and being quiet and waiting for some audible voice to speak to you out of nowhere. No, pick up your Bible and see what God has said and dig into it and then start responding to what God is saying to you. Because when you dig into this book, there's gonna find some things that you're encouraged by and let the word, the words of Christ fuel your prayers. God, I needed to hear that today. God, that is encouraging. And would you help me to think about that as it relates to this difficult situation in my life? Or when you dig into God's word, you're gonna come across some things that they're gonna be convicting. And you're gonna read that and you're gonna need to say, God, I read this today. And it really showed me, I'm thinking about this situation or what my words here or actions here, they were wrong, God. And I'm sorry. Will you forgive me for that? And will you help me change as I interact with this person or handle this situation? The word needs to kind of fuel prayers into our lives. And then it should also kind of work the other way around from our lives into God's word. When a situation comes up in your life, it's not just, hey, what do you think about that? And talk to God about it. No, we should run to his word. Another quote I came across in studying for this this week says, imagine what a difference it would make if we went straight to the word of God to hear from him and then based our prayer time in his wisdom, not ours. Start to see what kind of difference that would make. We often think about prayer as sharing what's on our hearts, and that's true. We're pouring out our hearts to God. That's good. But part of that should be saying, hey, God, what's on your heart about this? And where are we going to find that? by digging in to God's word. I mean, let me just give you one example of how this might work in your life. Let's just say you've got a work situation right now that you just hate, right? You you feel like your boss is a jerk. You're underpaid and underappreciated, right? Every American worker's dream, right? And it's just a tough situation. And, And you start just going to prayer and probably the first thing that pops into your mind to pray for is God, help me find a different job. God, get me out of this situation. That doesn't make you a terrible person. That makes you like the Apostle Paul, right? He got that thorn in the flesh and he said, God, take it away. But what happens if instead of just praying that, you start going to God and saying, God, what do you think about this? God, what's on your heart about this? And you start remembering, well, I heard a sermon this Sunday that reminded me all the trials that come into my life, they're for a purpose to make me more fruitful. Hey, God, This work situation is really tough for me, but would you help me to grow in Christ-likeness and to become more fruitful as a result of all this, God? And then you start thinking about what else the Bible says, and you're like, well, you know what? The Bible says that I need to do my work for God and not for man. So even though I don't like my boss, I should never be working for him in the first place. God, would you help me to have that heart this week? Would you help me to work every day for you 
and, and not for my boss and not to be working for a paycheck, but to do my work because it honors you. And God, I think really my boss's biggest problem is he doesn't know you. He hasn't turned from his sin. He doesn't know forgiveness. He doesn't know hope. He doesn't know joy. God, would you, would you use my example to show him that there's something different about what Christ can do with somebody's life? Would you open up his eyes to the gospel? Would you give me opportunities even just to share the gospel at work? See how you'd start praying differently? And instead of just, you know, throwing prayers at the wall and seeing what sticks and crossing your fingers and hoping it works out, you can start praying things and say, I know God is going to answer this. I know God is going to use this to help me bear more fruit. I know God is going to work on my heart to work for the Lord. Because I'm not just leaning on my own wisdom and what do I think about this. I'm going to God and saying, God, what do you think about this? And I'm doing that by digging into his word. And again, that's just one illustration. And so you're welcome to those of you who hate your current work situation. But for the rest of you, whatever's weighing on your heart, I want to challenge you this week. Are you going to go to God's word and say, God, what's on your heart about this? And just start to let that shape your prayers. And it's going to change your prayers because it's going to fill you with confidence. Because you're going to say, you know what? God's words are abiding in me. I am asking him based on his word, God's going to answer me. God is going to help me. And you start to see a confidence and a fruitfulness in your life, no matter what the circumstance. So you went to church today and you got told to read your Bible and pray. What a shocker, right? But you never saw that one coming. But I hope you start to see some of the reason of of why. And that it's not some just to-do list so you can be a good little Christian. It's not just some magic formula that makes all of your problems go away. But it's the actions that show a heart that knows you need help. Because that's true. Every single one of us, we need help. We can do nothing without Christ. So practically this week, we want to look to him. And I also think when we let the word fuel our prayers and we run in prayer to the word, we're going to see it's kind of a combustible, explosive combination that I don't think many Christians have ever much thought about or practiced in their lives. It's not a magic formula, but they are the practical steps to cultivate that connection to that source of life, Jesus Christ, so that you can live a life that's fruitful even in a famine. Let's pray together. God, I pray that you would help us to be weak enough to be powerful. God, help all of us to see our need for you. God, especially in a a spiritual sense, may today be the end of self-reliance in all of us. God, and may we not start a new week thinking, all right, this week should be okay. I can handle this. I can manage this. But may we go into a new week saying, God, I've got nothing without you and I need your help. Help us to have that attitude and help us to live out that attitude even by showing it with our actions, God, that we would trust in you and show that even by looking to you, to your words, God, reaching out to you in in prayer, in prayer that's not just fueled by our own wisdom, but prayer that is just founded on your word, God. That you would fill us with your words and then therefore fill our prayers with your words, God. And God, my prayer for Compass Bible Church, Treasure Valley, is that we would, God, be a church that glorifies you 
because we are bearing much fruit and proving to be your disciples, God. And Lord, even just we think of the time that we spent this morning and so many that worked so hard to make this morning happen from setting things up to preparing a sermon to the worship team got all the human effort that went into this morning, God, and we even admit that's nothing if you're not working. So God, we just ask that you would work on our hearts and we come to you even humbly asking you to change us, God, to make us more like Christ, to help us truly embrace what this text is saying to us so that we might bear much fruit. We pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ, God, and even with confidence that this is your will, that you are going to answer us. Amen.